Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Everyone gets AT&T's best deal on the new iPhone 14. So people currently listening to comedy podcasts and people listening to self-help podcasts and people listening to true crime podcasts who actually can't stop listening to true crime podcasts. The point is everyone, new and existing customers, ask how to get the new iPhone 14 on us with eligible trade-in. Visit att.com or stores for details. Terms and restrictions may apply. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. This week, we've got something a little bit special. Normally, the patron-exclusive episodes remain the exclusive property of patrons of this show. These are people who uh, give $5 or more a month to support the show financially, and they have access to, generally speaking, two of these exclusive episodes per week, or sorry, per month, as well as uh, access to the exclusive Facebook group for patrons only. 
However, I thought it would be fun this week to give you uh, general feed listeners, all the non-patrons, an example of the kind of episodes that patrons get to receive. Right now, I'm in the middle of a series of response episodes to the very popular Christianity Today podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I have been responding to that with theologian Tony Jones, and uh, he's also a frequent guest of this podcast. Most recently, he was one of my two guests on the Most and Least Plausible Christian Claims episode, which is, I believe, in the top 10 all time of this podcast. Very popular, very popular episode. Uh, so Tony and I have a really good time responding uh, every couple weeks to usually two of those uh, Mars Hill podcast episodes. So today I'm going to play for you the first of our responses. So this episode is in response to episodes one and two of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I will put a link to that podcast in the show notes. I would recommend listening to that first if you haven't already listened to it, but you don't have to listen to it. Tony summarizes at the beginning of this episode the basic history and story of that church. It was a massive neo-reformed Protestant church in Seattle, where I live, that also had campuses beyond Seattle, around the country, and even around the world. And uh, it's an incredible story of uh, meteoric rise and meteoric downfall, uh, almost as fast as one can possibly imagine a church imploding, basically. Um, It touches on all kinds of issues of religious and spiritual abuse, of course, something I'm very interested in, uh, as well as gender issues, sexuality issues, um, church growth, you know, demographics, uh, history of the sociology of American religion, the history of American Protestantism. It's a very, very well-made podcast. Uh, I have been greatly enjoying it, and I've really enjoyed responding with Tony along to uh, about those episodes uh, and thinking through them together with him. So uh, enjoy this little peek into what you might get if you became a patron of the podcast. We're going to continue to do these response episodes, I think, as long as the Mars Hill podcast goes. I'm not sure. You know, we can, we'll play that by ear. Um, But if you enjoy this episode, consider becoming a patron. I'm not going to do an ad in the middle. I'm just going to play this episode and that'll be that uh, this week. And I'll see you guys next week for a more standard episode of You Have Permission. Now, Tony, doing my best pastor voice here. Now, Tony... You ever have a one of those crazy days? I want to tell you about a 24-hour period in my life when I was 17 years old. <laughs> I took a verbal beating from my dad on my way out to a school dance with my new girlfriend. And I got to that dance and I, you know, my girlfriend looked so good and she twerked on me so hard that I came in my pants. And uh the thing though about this girlfriend even though she was pretty sexually adventurous, she was an evangelical Christian and she was she was friendship evangelizing me. And uh, she got me to go to a revival meeting the next morning. And I got to that meeting. And you know what, Tony? I met the Lord at that meeting. And so in a 24-hour period, I was reamed, creamed, schemed, and redeemed. (laughs) Now, if you don't – if you didn't get that, then you didn't – obviously didn't listen to episode two of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill where Rick Warren gives us his uh, classic little mega church pastor. His was – I was overextended, blended, rear-ended, and offended. 
<laughs> Which uh, I, I've actually listened to the episode twice to kind of prepare for this. And yeah. both times I fucking hated that part. Like I feel this I'll, – I'll save it. But I want to talk about how patronizing I felt like his tone of voice is, and I wonder why people like that because he's very popular. Dan, it was it was so interesting to me. I mean, that was one of those parts of that podcast that caught me totally off guard. I why mean, did the they other include one, it? The other one was that Driscoll preached at the Crystal Cathedral, but we'll get to that too. We'll get okay? to that too. Yeah, I didn't but know about that either. Rick yeah. Warren. I mean, here's what here's what surprised me. First of all, anybody who was watching that video at Mars Hill on the last day of of this church would have been like dying. The last and the guy's Sunday. just giving a canned I anecdote that he's probably given a hundred times before and is in three of his books. Yes. Okay. I couldn't believe it. That. Is it, it's not just patronizing. It's like he's just phoning it in, yeah. and then of course, of course. He takes no culpability himself that he had Driscoll preach at Saddleback. He preached at at Mars Hill. There was no like there, there was nothing about his own, you know, the, the fact that his own hands are dirty in this whole thing. He gave his imprimatur as the you know, the pastor of one of the biggest mega churches in the world and for sure a towering figure in West Coast evangelicalism, which he reminded the audience of when he told them how many, how many uh, campuses they had around the okay. world. Yes, Dan. Here's a funny. Now this isn't part of the. Okay, podcast, hold on. We a, gotta. No, wait. we gotta. I have to set up what we're even doing here. So save it. Put a pin in it. Uh, we are here, Tony. I we we went right in because I just wanted to surprise you with that joke, and I I was hoping yeah. for a bit more of an audible laugh because I thought that was pretty oh, fucking funny. Dude. It is, but whatever. I, I just you know, don't I'll never know how much I'm... to laugh on somebody else's podcast. You got. You have to show them. You have to show the other hosts that you're that you know you 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 got to suck up a little bit. Um, anyway, what we're doing here is uh, there is a new podcast that has been coming out. The third episode just dropped. Uh, we are responding to the first two episodes today. Um, it's made by Christianity Today, and they're kind of investigative. Uh, editorial team. It's very well made. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, that is a reference to Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington, Pastor Mark Driscoll. Uh, personally, I have about 20 friends that went to that church, some of whom were on staff, at least four or five friends that worked for that church. My old band practiced on their campus in, because our bass player was working there as a graphic designer and video editor at the time. So I have a lot of connections to that church, a lot of friends who went there. Um, and Tony is one of the – sounds like they've interviewed like 20 people or more for the podcast. Really, really, really wide range. But you're one of the people they interviewed. Uh, and so I've been texting with you a little bit about it. And we thought, hey, let's do some – like let's respond to this podcast yeah. and give some color and give some commentary and and just process it because it's very dense. There's a lot in each episode. Again, I think it's very well done. So that's what we're doing. And we're going to do a few of these uh, every two or three episodes for the time being. We're going to do one of these response episodes for patrons only. Uh, I think it's going to be a blast. I'm already having a lot of fun. And I just want to say before we get into it that there's something uh, I think poetic about two white men with uh, a fair bit of narcissism, each of us. Uh, processing a podcast about someone who likely has narcissistic personality disorder 
the truly clinical kind. And I, of course, I'm not diagnosing him. I'm not I'm not Mark's clinician and I can't diagnose people yet anyway. I'm a student. But let's just say he likely he's in that kind of ballpark alongside the Donald Trump's and the Ravi Zacharias's of the world. Uh, people who really cannot see the plight of other people, they they, they sort of are unable to. Um, they only see people as a means to their own ends. And uh, in, in, in the case of pastors, they only use spiritual language as a means to their own ends. And that's all over the podcast. Okay. So, Tony, before we get to your bit of more, more on Rick Warren, which I'm excited to do, um, for people who don't know wh- whether or not they've listened to the podcast, just if they don't know about much about Mars Hill – and Mark Driscoll, can you just give us a, a you know a couple minutes of like catch us up to speed? What do people need to know for this conversation? Yeah, okay. Uh, Driscoll was you know he's probably about my age. I'm 53. Um, there was a time in the mid to late 90s when there was kind of an explosion of church planting by Gen Xers, all of whom were in their mid to late 20s, maybe early 30s, and. Um, and we coalesced around – at first, we coalesced around this phrase emergent or the emerging church. Or we, Some of us started an organization called Emergent Village. But um, Driscoll was one of the premier Gen X church planters in the country. Um, he planted a church in Seattle called Mars Hill. He quickly became uh, – super evangelical famous, uh, you know, cover story in Christianity Today and speaking at all the big conferences at the time, the National Pastors Convention, the National Youth Workers Convention, headlining a lot of these things because he's he's a very good speaker. And, um, you know, his – at the time, I can't tell you how often you would hear the phrase – Seattle is the most unchurched city in the country. Oh, yeah. That was the, it was, I don't know that there was ever any data to back that up, but it was just like conventional wisdom. And I've everyone's, heard it. I've repeated it. I don't even know if yeah, it's true. It's probably not true, but whatever. Wow. Um, it is definitely like in the city limits, it's a, it's a pretty, most people here are pretty uninterested in going to church. That there, yeah. There's at least a folk wisdom truth to it. I don't know if it's number one or whatever, yeah, and, how you and measure it, was, it. But yeah. And that was maybe even maybe maybe even Seattle was more out of step with the rest of the United States in, you know, nineteen ninety eight. Now you'd probably go a lot of places and find uh, in urban centers a lot of people very uninterested in religion, but for sure at the time that was a big deal. So the fact that this guy had succeeded in planting a church that had a thousand or fifteen hundred or two thousand people going on Sundays was n- newsworthy, and uh, then enrolled the book deals. Um, even more speaking gigs. He left our little posse of emergent and joined up with another group called Acts 29, which was a more conservative church planning network. Um, and then, well, you know, we can talk about what happened after that. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll get to it, but you know, the, the very basis is that the, the church blew up. It imploded through multiple scandals. There was a plagiarism scandal. There was a New York times, like using $250,000 of, um, tithe money to goose the New York Times bestseller list scandal. 
there was internally, I know just from from people who were there, uh, it became known that he was making five hundred thousand to a million dollars a year in his personal salary at the church, and there was also just his a, a, a culture of what I would call spiritual abuse and you know other kinds of bullying at the church, and there was also a consolidation of power towards the end, um, and really just just kind of you can kind of fill in the gaps if you've if yeah. you've been aware of any of these kind of stories in religious or non-religious settings it became it became a fiefdom ruled by one powerful narcissist with a couple of yes men around him and then the whole thing imploded in a matter of months uh leaving tremendous devastation you know emotional spiritual whatever in its wake financial um so that's the the background and and Christianity today is making putting out this incredible podcast, which is not all finished because apparently they are still trying to get Mark on the line to to comment for a future episode at some well, point. I know, yeah, I know a guy in Seattle who was interviewed last week who had been on the staff of the church. Um, yeah, so they're still working he on I, it. He and I've been texting, and I know even that the. The episode that came out today, Mike Cosper, the host, was uh, tweeting yesterday, like, it's coming, it's coming. And I I think he put it out at like one in the morning. So this is not something that's all in the can, which is fascinating because I, it seems to me that the, the kind of podcast that they are mimicking, which of course, I mean, let's just take a macro view here about like how Christian culture always follows this late wave and like, oh, look sure. at the success of Serial, Slow yeah. Burn, you know, right. S-Town. Yeah. Let's do something like that. And- I mean, but yes, and it's true that Christianity Today, like, I guess what I'm saying is I never would have expected them, especially even just with their funding, to be able to compete with New York Times or NPR. But I'm just glad that they're doing it. And and for me, it's less about production value and more about like the quality of the investigative work and the quality of the storytelling. Like there's a lot, they are synthesizing a lot of information, like pretty high level sociological trends, church trends, demographic stuff. And they, they're doing it in a very well, uh, like regardless of audio quality or whatever, you know, the, and the music and stuff, just I'm following the story and it's a pretty complicated story. They're setting it up. Well, I just yeah. think they're doing a very good job, and I'm like I agree. pretty blown I, away. I, I mean, I have my, I have my criticisms. Well, of I it. was sure that you would disagree with some of the experts that they interview on various things because it's also your field, and people disagree and all that stuff. And it's not only you know, look, if if they're going to interview Ed Stetzer. And he's going to, you know, of course, he's like, he's a Southern Baptist. He works for yes. Christianity. Until last week, he worked for Christianity Today. Now he works for Outreach Magazine. He runs the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. Right. Like, that guy is in the deep end of the pool. Um, when they interview a, a sociologist like uh, Gerardo Marty, is he's somebody I have a huge amount of respect for. I can't wait to get him on. I, I need yeah. to reach out, but I'm, his, I'm planning his, to interview I, him soon. I can He's connect incredible. you with him. His work is fantastic. Yep. And one of his books actually is uses a photo shot by my wife at an emergent church in Dallas. Oh, nice. Uh, his church, his book that he wrote on the emerging church movement. And right. he's a great expert. He'd be a great one for us to have on in oh, a, yeah. in a su- subsequent episode. Yeah. See if he'd do it, be- yeah. Um, 
he would do it. He would do it. Uh, anyway, yeah, here, here's my criticism just to get it off my chest. I think that Christianity Today and, and the host, Mike, is simply too apologetic for evangelicalism because he's Agreed. still an evangelical. Yeah, you I agree? agree? I agree. Okay. I'm just I mean, filtering like, like, it through. Here, here's, here, yeah. here's an example, just a quick example, okay? He says in episode one things like maybe Mark Driscoll just, you know, what is it about us evangelicals that we let somebody become so famous so young before he can become a seasoned, you know, mature Christian leader? And then 10 minutes later, he does this litany of Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias, like da da da. You can go down the list of these men who had time, you know, they didn't become famous young like Driscoll. So right. it's like, dude, these these guys, these guys narcissistically falling has nothing to do with how old they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's good. I that I would like to see that. And you know what? It might come in because they have talked to uh, Diane Newberg. Is that her name? She's she's one of these spiritual abuse. Um, Experts, experts. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the few I haven't interviewed yet on the podcast, but but she was. They haven't played long clips with her yet, but she's hinting at that kind of stuff, and she would definitely be bringing in the kind of personality disorder angle. So yeah. uh, uh, there's the guy from Imago Day in Portland. Um, it's not Craig Finley. It's uh, Nick, Rick McKinney. Rick McKinney, and and Rick and Mark are like like if Rick got too big for his britches, it would be because he got popular quick and he was too young to handle it. But Rick is almost definitely not a person with a raging personality disorder. And right. that's the difference between him and Mark, right? So, and and Rick's church got popular really quickly too. We have a ton of friends who went to Imago yeah. Day uh, from the beginning and it blew up immediately. Um, they, they were tapping into some vein, but he's <laughs> has not had the... Uh, career of Mark Driscoll. And, right. and I don't think it's, you know, they, they got popular around the same age and at about the same speed. So yeah, I do think that the way that the way that they put a lot of that emphasis but at the same time. So there, there are two things. It's sort of like they're getting one right and they're missing the other. The one that's right is we do fetishize celebrity in the, in the American church, including the evangelical church and they gesture towards the fact that there aren't a lot of institutional checks in these non-denominational right. settings, right? And so there's nothing really to hold it back. That part's right. The part that they're not putting in that is also right here is that there is a real psychological element. And that's why you need those institutional checks because you have to be able to weed out bad actors in some you know, reliable way, basically, to keep them from coming in as wolves and tearing shit apart. And the Presbyterian Church, for instance, and the Catholic Church have much better methods of weeding those people out than charismatic leader-based low church situations. Yeah, I mean, that's right. And And two of the things that have not yet been addressed on the podcast, and I would be shocked if they were— one of them is just the free market entrepreneurial system of evangelical church, mm. which is if you can if if you're a charismatic dude and you can just rent the local middle school auditorium and start preaching, 
And if people come and you put together a good band, you know, before you know it, you're going to have a book deal from Zondervan. Yep. You're going to be speaking at conferences. Like, and if you don't, you'll just wash out and nobody will ever think of you again. That's not how it works in mainline church. And so the others, you know, what you're saying is that's right. The Lutheran church, the Presbyterian church, the Catholic church, they all have, now these are not entrepreneurial systems. Right. Like they're very highly bureaucratic, but they also have processes by which they weed. I mean, I, I remember a guy I went to seminary with who was so mad because he kept failing his PCUSA psychological evaluation what? and they wouldn't ordain him whoa good and we were all like yeah you're crazy i mean behind his back we were all like yeah, yeah that dude's crazy he should not be a pastor but of course what did he do he just left the pc usa which i'm sure they're like hey you know we're not gonna like call around to the assemblies of god and yeah tell them that would actually be a pastor. probably be unethical of them to do that right <laughs> but yeah but sure, sure. But, no, that's yeah. You're right. The, I yeah, I do think and, that they were yeah. kind of addressing that, though. I I mean, especially in episode two, uh, which I just re-listened to last night. Um, you know, they they did talk about how they talked about because of the infrastructure of these. Or no, no, sorry, it wasn't the infrastructure of the boomer um, institutions, but it was the self the the vicious cycle, the self reinforcing cycle. Of giving a vision, of being a charismatic leader who casts a vision. And then as yeah. people buy into it, then that reinforces that you have the vision and then you get invited to speak at other things. And then so there is there it's part of what you're saying. They were kind of talking about how how you don't need much. Sure. You just need that charisma and to be able to convince a couple hundred people that you've got a specific vision from God. And if you can do that, then all this other stuff will naturally multiply. And it has nothing to do with if your vision is accurate, you know, or like, yeah. or anything, right? It's just like, if you have the right, basically consumerist tools, if you have the right entrepreneurial tools, then you'll just explode. And the the kindling is all there, like ready to be lit if you have the spark. Yeah. And the other thing that I'll be shocked if they address is the is how terrible Driscoll's theology is. They probably and won't how, do that because there's too much there's too much overlap with the average evangelical theologically. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll just tell you a couple quick anecdotes that are not on the podcast about Driscoll. Well, unless it's in episode three, but I kind of doubt it. And they both took place around the same time. One was the, this group of 20, which you hear Tim Conder in episode two. He's a North Carolina pastor. He talks about this group of 20 that I was in, Driscoll. Doug Paget was kind of the coordinator of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we were in New York. Brian McLaren just told me this story recently. Uh, we were in New York for a meeting. We went and saw the Blue Man group before anyone had heard of them. It was crazy. Nice. This is like 2001, you know. Um, they, he was in a car, like, or in a cab, sharing a cab with Driscoll. And Driscoll says to Brian in the back of this cab, Brian, you got to know this. Remember, I'm just a fucking fundamentalist. So he was kind of admitting to Brian, I don't know if I really fit in here because you guys, you guys are not just talking about doing church differently, but you're talking about like understanding the gospel differently. Okay. And then the other one that I wasn't, I wasn't there for was in Seattle. Um, 
and they had done this like two day long. This was pre emergent, but uh, a young leader network uh, regional gathering. We called them. I think it was in the year ninety nine, probably or two thousand. And on the last day on stage, it was like a panel discussion, you know, and it's like Dan Kimball, Doug Paget, Brian McLaren, Mark Driscoll, or whatever. And right toward the end, Driscoll said, "Look, the f- you just have to understand some people." were made to be matchsticks. So he was basically saying, God has predestined certain people to be among the damned. And everyone there was just like, wait, what did you just say? Because we all thought we were kind of on the same page of like toward a more progressive understanding of the gospel and things like this. And he just doubles down on this like very hardcore, like five point Calvinism. And we, it was, it was a shock to everybody in the room. Um, so that's where I wonder like, well, well, a lot of, of what made Driscoll, I think so toxic was the combination of his personality with his theology. Yes. And, and to that end, another thing I, I don't think they will get into as much as I'd like is the, the toxic complementarianism of Mars Hill. Oh yeah. Which now they, they will probably talk some because it went beyond what, for instance, even most Southern Baptist churches would actually teach. You know, like most complementarians in America would say, even pastors, I mean, would say something like, look, God does have different roles for men and women. There is some distinction. There's wiggle room probably, you know, with individual family systems and, you know, push comes to shove. There might be a a wife who's a lawyer and she probably should work more. And you know what I mean? Like the majority of complementarians are – it's more like – you should submit to this as a general principle and God will God will teach you both something by it and and the husband like you will learn submission yourself in interesting ways and whatever that's like i maybe i may be giving the rosiest version of it but i would i genuinely think i know complementarian christians that really would phrase it that way that is what they actually think mars hill was like into the nitty gritty, like yeah. you need to be earning. You should probably start a business, husband. Like, uh, there, like wives, you should be giving regular blowjobs. Like it yeah. was. It's like, <laughs> I mean, anybody who's taken psychology one hundred and one in their undergrad could start highlighting the word projection. By the way, and whatever Mark is saying, <laughs> um, but like. It got to a point of like – like one of the items on my spiritual abuse survey is being expected to follow uh, – there, there are two related items. Being expected to follow your pastor's individual beliefs around dating, marriage, and sex. Now, I don't mean what they think are – what they teach as biblical principles. I mean their individual beliefs. That's Driscoll. Another one is – uh, being expected to consult your pastor for non-religious decisions. And obviously Driscoll pastored a massive church. So the number of people that had direct access to him was small, but I would not be surprised at all if people that actually knew him were expected to basically get him to sign off on stuff that they are doing that is unrelated to their involvement in church. 
that he's that kind of a controlling person. Um, And yeah. What, what I've heard, I've heard stories and there's some stuff that's been posted online recently. There's a website called deardriscoll.com that's by a guy in Phoenix who was on staff with him. But I guess this church he pastors in Phoenix now, he's gone further. Like he's, he's, he's gone like the Scientology route where he's separating families. He's forbidding people from talking to their parents because their parents, you know, their parents aren't true believers or whatever. Um, so he's taking that kind of almost that's cult just straight leader. up cult behavior right there. Yeah. I mean, that's, that so this is, is universal inter- Dan, cult leader stuff. I'd be interested in your take on this psychologically, because I have another vivid memory of um, when I was, I was at Princeton from 03 to 05, getting my PhD, doing my PhD coursework, and of course, TA in classes, you know, MDiv classes. And I remember um, uh, a, a master's student at Princeton Seminary who was doing, I don't know, he, he was doing some research paper or something for some class that I was TAing. And he was going home for the holidays to Seattle, so he was going to make Mars Hill one of his places to, you know, check out uh, for for his um, th- this research project. Right. And he came back, and I'll, I vividly remember him telling me when he came back, he was like, it, "Tony was unlike any other church I've been to. Everything about it was so masculine." He's like, Driscoll came up on stage surrounded by like these guys. So this was, you know, at by this point, Driscoll already had bodyguards walking him to and from the, the, the platform on Sunday mornings. And he wow. talked about the music and how muscular and masculine the music was. And then this is, this is what I remember, Dan. He said, Tony, even the paint, the color of the paint inside the, the worship center or sanctuary or whatever was very masculine. Like all these dark, browns and beiges and stuff like this and and so i thought that was fascinating even back in the day you know this is a long time ago now but that that he had developed that kind of um environment at the church that it was so masculine and i remember his like his secretary was always a guy he never wanted a woman to be a secretary. It was always, and he was, he surrounded himself with guys, which I'll just say one other thing is like one of the, among the feedback that I've gotten from people who've listened to the first couple episodes are the people who are involved in the church are, they're very angry because they feel like some of the former staff members on that church who are on the podcast, they are now trying to rewrite history because at the time what they did was um, they were absolute sycophants to Mark and did whatever he wanted and protected him and apologized for him. And now they're kind of rewriting history like, oh, I felt something was off in 2005 or whatever. Sure. And they didn't. Or they didn't act on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's just sort of one of the problems you have when you do a retrospective and you, you're only, you know, you you don't have audio, right? Or you don't have, you don't necessarily have yeah. accounts from that time. I mean, there's probably some stuff, and hopefully they will. Yeah, that would be good to that would be good if Cosper and the team utilized some of those contemporaneous accounts, right? From from that time, but 
it's just kind of some of that's the cost of doing business. Um, to respond to the masculine thing, you know, that's really interesting. I some of that stuff I think is is uh, potentially, you know, totally innocent. Like, I I don't mind. I don't mind in theory an expression of Christianity that is aesthetically masculine, aesthetically masculine, right? So, um, I mean, it might be workplace discrimination to never hire a woman for something or, you know, that, that might be its own issue. But like, I, I know the guy who, d- who chose Mark's wardrobe for many years at Mars Hill. Oh, wow. For instance. And I know, um, and, and this gentleman, you know, he, he would, um, consult with Mark on the story arc of a lot of the stuff in his books or his sermon series or whatever. I don't think there's anything wrong with using, for instance, your storytelling or aesthetic abilities in service of a particular church. I think there's something wrong with allowing that to be used by a bad actor narcissist. Right. But um, I, I don't like, I'm less worried about sort of, aesthetic differences. And I, and I do think that there's something like something that he succeeded in that. I wonder if he might've been able to succeed in separate from his disorders is like appealing to men, generally speaking, and actually calling out what is, I think kind of undeniably a culture of extended adolescence for adult men in America. Now, I don't think that the solution to that is like browbeating people with repressive uh, and highly segmented complementarianism that demeans women. I don't think that's the answer to adolescence, but it's like an answer that I think is unhealthy, but that was super efficacious. And I wonder if there's a like, I'm not the guy to do it. I'm not a particularly masculine man myself. Like I'm flabby. I, I'm, you know, I'm okay at sports, but I don't play them very much. I have a higher pitched voice. I'm interested in like indoor activities. <laughs> I don't have a smoker, you know, like, and I'm okay with that. I, I'm, ex- I've accepted my, uh, <laughs> my brand of masculinity, but like, there are guys that like, I wouldn't reach if I were a pastor, you know? And, and like, there's, there's room for that. Um, and I, th- I found it interesting to try and tease those two things apart. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I mean, the, the the in some ways Driscoll was just an early adopter of this like masculinist culture that we see in MMA fighting or Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson. Sure, you know that whole posse. I, I've got a 16-year-old son and a 21-year-old son, and they're both um, very uh, enamored of that masculinist culture. And they talk Mm. openly about it because they feel like where they go to high school and college, their voices have been marginalized. And so I – yeah, I mean, I do think Driscoll unknowingly was, you know – swimming in that pool long before it became kind of very culturally popular. Um, and obviously he took, he, he, he takes it in a very, I think toxic and unchristian direction. I mean, 100%. I, I just don't know that I agree with you that the ex, 
extension of adolescence is male, exclusively male. Oh, think, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, that, I, don't that, think, I could be, I'm, yeah. I'm perfectly happy to say that. I'm just mean, there is, there is a pretty particularly male version of it that involves a lot of video games. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and, and you're not wrong that at the time, as well as talking about Driscoll, you know, having this huge church in the most unchurched city in the country, there was also a lot of talk about all the guys who were going to Driscoll's church. And but the other thing is, um, and and this is Trump like to get back to the psych- psychology. I, I've often thought that you know you watch Trump give a speech and he he breaks away from the teleprompter and if he says something and he he's such an he's such just pure id right like if if the crowd responds he he repeats it yep and doubles down on it like yeah. he is so he's constantly he's just, running a real time focus group. Yeah, he's just reptile brain. Like, yeah. he's pure lizard brain. So he's just responding to the stimuli around him. And when it's a crowd and he says something. So I remember Driscoll would say things like he, he one time was talking and, you know, he, he, he was uh, quite a gr- excellent, excellent speaker. And as, as they say in the podcast and, and as I said when I was interviewed about him by Christianity Today years ago, back when he was before his fall, I, my quote in Christianity Today is, Mark could have been a great stand-up comic. I mean, he really could yeah, have been. He's a, got he, great he, timing, and he's very incredible funny. Incredible yeah. timing, very, very smart, top of his head, like in, in, the, like, in the Don Rickles type, um, like insult comic, kind of Bill Burr in that in that genre of comic, Andrew Dice Clay, like Sam Kinison, those yeah. are the comics I think Driscoll could have been like. And, and you think about those comics, and they're all, except maybe with the exception of Rickles, are also very kind of masculine in their posture toward the audience um, and aggressive. Um, but Driscoll would say something like, I remember him saying something about the pussification of the church. Yeah. And which I thought at the time, oh my gosh, that's so offensive. And yet a little like ripple went through the crowd and Driscoll would sense that in a Trump like way. And then he would just double down on that because like, oh, they're with me. Like I went right to the edge and they're not throwing me off the cliff. So I guess pussification of the church is a phrase that I can now use. So he would do stuff like that. And it was in some ways, you know, a brilliant quote unquote in, in it, at least if you would have watched him as a communicator, but I mean, Hitler was a brilliant communicator. Jimmy Swaggart was a brilliant communicator. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I totally lot. agree with you. I don't, I wouldn't call that lizard brain stuff. I think okay. that these guys, um, I think that what they do well and what they're, what they are consciously doing in the case of Driscoll, Trump and Hitler is they are consciously using their speeches as a throw stuff against the wall focus group. Hmm. And and they I think that Trump is very aware. I think he's actually looking for what kind of reaction he gets. He's field testing phrases. A lot of them are things he does in the moment and some of them I'm sure he brings in and wants to try them out. Just like mm-hmm. a comic tries new material at the small club before they're special, right? Like yeah, it's I, I do think that that's what's going on. I mean, I think Trump is all ego and, and narcissism, but I don't think I don't think he's all lizard brain. Lizard brain is about survival. I mean, he's he's 
he's got mm. some frontal lobe action to put it to put it that way. He's scanning. And I think Driscoll was doing the same thing. He was using his great intellect in the service of his own ego, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah. and using Christian language in a Christian context. So so speaking of that, there's one thing from I believe it's from episode one I wanted to bring up. Uh, one of the one of the scariest moments, I guess, in the podcast is when he and his wife purportedly have the same experience where God tells them they're released from Mars Hill. And then he adds in and a trap has been set right yeah. now. At this point in the story, he's already been caught plagiarizing twice. He has been caught spending a quarter million dollars of ministry funds on goosing the New York Times bestseller list. Okay, so what fucking trap is he talking about? Like, like, there's no way. There's there are only two explanations here. One is that he's so narcissistic or otherwise that he is genuinely self deluded, and really does not think he's done anything wrong, or he it, it, he is just being a snake. He's being a wolf in sheep's clothing and 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 lying through his teeth to preserve his future possibility of ministry and something else. Like I told you, I, I've been communicating with a couple people, one who used to be on staff at Mars Hill and one who was in the congregation for right till till the bitter end, like was at that last yeah. service where they played the Rick Warren video. And what I don't think is... Was to- has been totally clear in the podcast yet, and I guess I didn't really know it. As you can tell from my quote, I- I- I've got my you know I've got my quote at the be- that they play in the beginning that he was teaser. fired for being an asshole. Yeah, yeah, he was fired yeah. for being an asshole. Well, he wasn't fired; he quit. And um, but I had always kind of thought he was forced out, like he was forced out of Acts twenty nine, yeah. and then shortly thereafter he was forced out of Mars Hill. But I've been told. In the last week, by a couple people, he not he would not have been fired. Like yeah. they were shocked that he quit. Wow. He was not going to be fired because he had fired every person on staff and the elder board yeah. who, who disagreed with him. He yeah. had surrounded himself with acolytes and sycophants, and they were not going to fire him. They were going to continue to cover for him. So to your point of like, how did he get away with all that stuff and a trap had been set? I think he was just using that. I mean, now that I hear a little more background information, either either he totally misread the situation, which I suppose is pop- possible, but it seems unlikely that he thought he was going to get fired. But more likely, he looked for a scapegoat and he decided that by using this phrase of like uh, you know a trap has been set for me there are wolves in my congregation out to get me that he could use this very vague language that still you know Christians are familiar enough with that kind of language that when when a Christian leader says something like that people are like oh I you know I've seen that before yeah. that he used that as as an excuse for escaping before he was really held to any kind of accountability because the only thing that was going to happen to him was he was going to get on some accountability plan to you know help him be nicer to people right <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of, oh gosh, 
it is interesting. I it's hard to know like from a purely the from a purely sort of Driscoll um Driscoll's interests perspective, like it seems like just staying at Mars Hill would have been better for him than starting a small church in Arizona, right? Like and and yeah. obviously fleeing and sort of having his public name like forever marred, which I I would say certainly has been the case. He's done he's been invited on like a couple shows or something in these super conservative kind of southern circles, right? The the like like I want to call it like dumb shit television Christianity or something like that. Like <laughs> lowest common denominator yeah. television Christianity, which I'm not I'm that sounds judgmental. Um I think there's a real lack of discernment in inviting him and his wife on to a ministry show, but like he's not in, you know, he's not on any of these platforms anymore. He's not, he has lost all of that. And I don't know what his thinking was in terms of, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe he thought maybe some part of him knew it would be better for some people for him to just leave. I don't know. Uh, Oh, come on. I don't know. Yeah. I kind of doubt it. You cannot, No, you can't think any. There was anything altruistic in his yeah. rationale for leaving at the time. I think he made a calculation that he would better be, he'd be able to bounce back better if he left and started. I mean, he. I'm. You know, in some ways, maybe he thought, "Well, shit, I look what I built in 15 years. You know, yeah, I could do that again. I'll, do it again. I'll just go also, somewhere else and do that again." But. But I wonder if he looked back and thought, "Oh shit, you know, I pulled the ripcord too early." I mean, what mm. he what he was faced with was some reckoning that would have included, you know, apologies, listening to the voices of his victims, um, having oh, yeah. to confront the pain he had caused no, people. He didn't do any of that stuff. No. no, because his but Dan, his whole brand was. Don't give a shit about what anybody says. Like, all we care about is the gospel. And if that means there's, you know, people under the bus and in the wake of the bus who got run over by the bus, that's fine. Because basically, and look, Christian history is replete with people who have said anything for the sake of the gospel. I mean, my God, let's kill Muslims for the sake of the gospel by having crusades across Europe to re- rescue Christian Europe from from the uh, Ottoman Empire. Like, th- this is not unheard of. It's just really counter to our modern sensibilities that somebody would say, I honestly don't give a shit about anybody else. All I care about is saving souls. I don't want people to go to hell when they die. Damn the consequences. Yeah, yes, yes. And that's why... <clears throat> That kind of those eternal stakes are to me one of the most psychologically interesting features of Christianity because they both provide immense meaning for people who buy into them, and they also provide immense cover for all kinds of of tomfoolery uh, yeah. and and frankly crime uh, because people will if you think that that's what's at stake then what are the what kind of reasonable sort of, you know, safeguards should you ever put on anything. Um, yeah, but 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 also Dan, I'd say on the, on the other side of the ledger, 
um, you know, I think about your intro to your podcast, which is like, I'm a progressive Christian, but I'm not just talking to progressive Christians, That this kind of thing. Yeah. The problem with progressive Christianity is there are not eternal stakes. Mm-hmm. And the reason that people are not motivated to go to progressive churches and become deeply invested in progressive Christian communities is because lacking those eternal stakes, Christianity simply does not have that much to offer vis-a-vis human life or, you know, vis-a-vis the evangelical church. And this is a big part of the reason that, you know, like church attendance is so low in for instance, Scandinavian countries, which are traditionally Christian countries and actually have a state church. And, you know, the church and the state are actually officially wedded. And nevertheless, because the state provides all of the needs, uh, that meets all of the needs of the poorer people in, in those cultures, the church really lacking those eternal stakes has nothing to offer people. Like, why the hell would you go to church if it's not going to save you from eternal damnation and all your needs are already met? So the the eternal stakes, that cuts both ways. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've heard you, you've said that to me before, I think both on and off the podcast. And, and I, I, on the on the face of it, it makes fight sense. Fight me, bro. Fight now, me. Now I don't I don't have a fight. I, I do wonder. I wonder if we look more fine grained how true that is. Like I I do think that a lot of people who are regular church attenders, they're they're aware of the sort of like heaven hell thing. But if you press them on it, they they don't necessarily they don't often share. They don't tell you the view that the church has. On heaven and hell. So there are plenty of people who go to mega churches that teach the eternal conscious torment of the damned. And they just think, you know, my cousin is a good person. I really don't think God's going to send him to hell. Right. Like that. So I don't. So it makes it, it it pencils out. But I don't know that it's actually a good description of the individual psychology of many people who do find church beneficial and go because of it, you know? So there's something, uh, it's not, but I think it's like not the only piece, like sometimes the way you phrase it is, I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean, but it's a little more totalizing. And I think yeah, it's, that may uh, be true. maybe that's a quarter of it or something. I would like say that, this, you know? the, the, the liberal church in America has struggled to find its reason for being agreed. Yeah. Since they abandon the, Extra ecclesium nulla solus, you know. Uh, outside the church, there is no salvation. Sure, message and, of the traditional yeah. Orthodox Christian Church. Yeah, but that message is, has to be false. So, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, I don't it's, know. That, I mean, hubris. I don't have an answer. Yeah, it's like, but like I've told. The, I don't know if you've heard the episode where I told this story, but uh, Jaffrey and I were. Um, we, we briefly did this kind of volunteer thing where we were driving elderly people to the, to the doctor's appointments is before life got busier. And this, this wonderful, uh, Russian or Greek Orthodox woman 
was talking, was giving us the hard sell on Greek orthodoxy, right? And at the time, I was interested in Catholicism, and so I mentioned Catholicism. And she's like, oh, well, you know that that Greek orthodoxy, that the Orthodox Church is the real church, not Catholics aren't Christians. And I was like, well, what do you think about Mother Teresa? And she's like, oh, she's one of the good ones. <laughs> so, like, she immediately had a category for right. Catholics that obviously love God. It's like you if you press people on that stuff, like, I don't – I just don't even know how many people really even believe it. That, that official stuff. So so as far as I'm concerned, good riddance. I, I know you agree theologically, yeah. good yeah. riddance. Yeah. But yeah, there is a real problem. And to bring it back to Mark, actually, this is an interesting way of – this is an interesting angle for why do men respond to him so much? And And by the way, these aren't just the men in the church. These are all the men who downloaded the sermons. Right, uh, pre-podcast, oh, yeah. and then when it became a podcast, early and bought early his podcast, marriage book, and bought and, his marriage yeah. book exactly. Yeah, right. So there's something there going on because yeah, he's a Calvinist, but he doesn't talk about hell very much. He talks a lot more about well, I guess I I haven't listened to a lot of his preaching, so you might know this better than me. But my impression is that it's more about like personal responsibility in this life is yeah. much more a topic for him than eternal destination. And that, like, even listening to some of his clips about, there's a clip in episode one, I think, about um, men and video games and, like, get off your ass and, and, and you know, basically be a servant of God and quit being, yeah. a, quit being an asshole. Um, like, that even resonates with me. And I've been off my ass for many years now. I, I work really hard. I provide for my family. Uh, I, I check the boxes actually, sort of, like, objectively. But I still even resonate a little bit with that message of like there is a sense in which especially middle to upper class white men in America, we are kind of given a pass on a lot of our moment to moment um, like like the 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 call to virtue, which was prop was probably stronger 50, 100, 150 years ago in American society than it is today for young men. And yeah. And now when you hear Jordan Peterson sort of make – I know that he's – he's he is – a lot of his controversy is well-earned. But some of his – some of his – a lot of his stuff is just like clean your fucking room. Like just be an adult. And that is not controversial and it's so rare that someone will say it to you. And sometimes it's what people need to hear. Now, I don't think it always works. And there's a lot – you could get into the, the differences of sort of how people are motivated and how they change their minds. And that's not always effective. But it was really effective for a lot of people. And it wasn't about hell. So that's interesting. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that's exactly right. There was some of this – like I, I see it now with my boys and, you know, the, the, the guys they get introduced to via Joe Rogan is like – David Goggins and Jocko Willink, there are these former military guys who are like, you want to get, you know, like, you want to stop being a fat tub of goo? Like, here's how you do it. You start by doing five push-ups a day. Let me tell you about basic training. Let me tell you about when I was a Navy SEAL. Hmm. And there's like, rah, 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 er, er, er. And there is, there definitely is that. I mean, that is going on. You're right. That was a lot of what Driscoll was doing. And, and, Absolutely, that message was whatever you call it, politically incorrect, and yet resonated with a whole bunch of dudes in Seattle and then across the country mm-hmm. who, yeah, who who were lost in 
late late adolescence. I one we don't have to get into this. I'm not a Joe Rogan guy. I don't like the podcast. I've listened to a handful of episodes when he's had somebody on who either I was interested in or I found the topic interesting. But something and I know that he is imperfect, but he doesn't get enough credit, I think, for introducing a bunch of MMA bros to some pretty sophisticated not usually his own, you know, analysis, but the analysis of some pretty sophisticated people in a way that like where sometimes I'm really glad, like I would much rather your sons listen to Joe Rogan than just watch MMA or or like like what's the alternative, right? Is like sports talk radio, it's it's what? Right? Like but he'll have on psychologists and neurobiologists and yeah. And like he'll have on gender studies professors and he'll engage with them like he is actually he is in my mind, he's providing a service simply by exposing people who would not otherwise be exposed to interesting and challenging ideas. That's one thing. The other thing I wanted to respond to is like if you don't want to be a a lump of goo, which is a pretty good description of my physical body – um, there are steps you can take, and some people have figured that out, and it is actually good to not be a lump of goo. If I can get myself to be less of a lump of goo, I'll live longer. I'll see more of my son's life. I'll be able to play more sports with him and connect with him if he turns out to be a jock. And if he does, he does, and that's fucking fine. And I <laughs> I do need a plan to be in better shape, to be a better dad. That aligns with my values, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I think is going on in some of some of what keeps us from learning some lessons from Driscoll and masculinity, which I did not think this is where the podcast was going to go, by the way, is the same. It's the same thing that keeps us from learning anything from the Joe Rogan situation. And is that as liberals, we have our own insecurities and anxieties yeah. and Joe Rogan is fit and rich and has a massive platform. And I don't, and I'm not fit and I'm not rich. And And so I will lean into all of my sort of lazy leftist critiques of him for not being sufficiently to the left. And he's not sufficiently to the left. I disagree with him on things. But like he's probably a net good to the type of people who would otherwise exclusively watch MMA and listen to sports talk radio. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with all that. Faced with the alternatives of the other things my boys could be doing that a lot of their peers do, which is like a lot. My, my boys report to me that they have friends who play video games six to nine hours per day. Right. That's actually that's the real alternative is just it's if it's not sports, it's video games. Right. And these are guys yeah. who are like in college and they right. sit in their college dorm. They're not involved in a single activity, sport or club. They play video games when they're not in in school. I mean, I. I I talked to the prof- one of the one of my college professors who still leads a foreign study program in Rome, and he was just bemoaning to me. He's like, "Tony, I, I got to tell you, man, you know it's so different than when you studied here in 1989 because these students now they go back to their apartments and they FaceTime with their friends and parents and they stream Netflix. They don't go explore the city of Rome at night. It, it's it's hmm. like the, the and." Those screens are just like sucking the life out of them. Um, so right for for a guy like Joe Rogan 
to kind of have this no bullshit and this kind of he's you know he he acts like he's a big dumb jock but he's obviously extremely intelligent well read well prepared for all of his interviews uh yeah i i i don't mind i just hope my boys are smart enough to you know uh not become joe rogan disciples but instead sure. realize that he's you know he's a member of the media and he's interviewing people and He's asking some questions and not asking others. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, well, I don't want people to become disciples of me either. You know, I'm I'm one voice among many. Uh, Driscoll, on the other hand, did want people to become disciples of him to bring it. That's right. To wrap it back. I mean, as we wrap up here, that was an an unexpected sort of 10, 12 minute rabbit trail there. But it it does all tie back into this stuff. Um, And it. I really, as you were saying, I really doubt the podcast is going to get into any of that. So maybe for that reason alone, I'm glad that we talked about it a little bit because um, it, it's not going to come up. They're not going to – I don't think they'll really ah, – maybe we'll be surprised. I've been I've been pleasantly surprised thus far, thus far with the show. Um, anything – any last thoughts before we wrap up and, and come back for episodes three and four? I guess – you know, what I'm going to be listening for in episodes three and four is how apologetic are is Mike, the host, going to be for um, this like, well, but I mean, souls were saved. That yeah. kind of that kind of instrumentalist view of spiritual abuse. Like I know he abused people, but I mean, you know, he has this, he has this little line toward the end of episode one where he's like, but you know, I mean, souls were saved. He used the, he, he actually used the term kingdom advancement at one point. I'm like, what, what kind of friggin' Christian jargon is that? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and people were like in recovery from drugs and he did do good things. So we can't just write him off. And you're like, this isn't, you can't put this in the scale. When somebody's an abuser, you can't put it in the scale like, yeah, I mean, I know Hitler killed people, but also he collected a lot of great art. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, uh, 33 million people had a very strong sense of national identity. <laughs> right. or 80 million you, you or whatever it was. You don't get to do that. No, you don't get and, to do that. And yet, and yet, because this is being produced by a sectarian organization and media company that has theological convictions, yeah. we're just always going to have to listen to it with that in mind, with a grain of salt, that how how not not I'm not saying that NPR or Slate doesn't also come with particular biases and convictions. Totally, but uh, you know I just think that so far it's been a little too apologetic for Christianity, and I'll be interested to see if that is if they which direction that goes. Yeah, I, I've just been listening with like. The the filter of like, okay, this is made by and mostly for evangelicals. And there are some shared assumptions in that world that I don't share. And so I just I'm just aware of that. You know, assumptions about like, yeah, converting people to Christianity is still kind of the best thing you can do, right? Like that's kind yeah. of the, the best result of any activity in the world right. is for people to become Christians um who weren't. And so they give Saddleback and those early, those, you know, some of that. We didn't talk much about that back, 
backdrop. Uh, I would love to let's see if we can get uh, Gerardo on to talk more about that backdrop, because I thought that yeah. that was actually really well done on the show. And I'm, of course, fascinated by all that stuff. But they they basically took at face value that these guys were saving souls. And so, yeah, like that's really great work. And I'm like, right. well, I don't know. <laughs> is it? I mean, like I, I like the idea of giving people a church where they're already going to live. I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. But um, the, it, there is a real trade off. And and Mike, you know, Mike did talk about that trade off, but it was more of an instrumentalist trade off of like it won't work somewhere else. It does work here. I yeah. I would describe the trade off as it works for your stated goal of getting someone into your church where it fails is when those people come up against any kind of pluralism and they freak the fuck out and elect Donald Trump and alienate their children. Right. Like that's, that's the trade off. It's not so much, well, we won't be able to win souls in the urban areas the way we can in the suburbs. It's like, no, there's like a much bigger trade off than that. A more totalizing trade off, which is you're just having people live in bubbles where they can't deal with the outside world, but the outside world was about to encroach on them via the internet anyway. And their children who have much more access to pluralistic ideals and life experiences. And so now we're paying the price for that church growth approach and, and really kind of totalizing you, you have everything you need now in the suburbs with your church and your, whatever your local park. Um, so, I don't know. It's uh, anyway. Okay. Well, we're done time wise. Uh, thank you, Tony. Yeah, Fantastic. Man, I can't wait fun. to do more of these. Yeah, it's fun. I I, I hope your patrons like it. Uh, yes, I think that they very much will have liked it. Um, and we will we'll do it again. This message comes from our sponsor, Clarios. Did you know that every hybrid and electric vehicle needs a low voltage and a high voltage battery? While your car battery may not be the first thing on your mind, it's always in the minds of the people at Clarios who just introduced their new XEV low voltage batteries specifically for EVs and hybrids. Clarios XEV is the perfect partner to the high voltage battery to help ensure constant power and crucial safety functionality so you can drive in comfort and confidence. Learn more at Clarios.com. Everyone gets AT&T's best deal on the new iPhone 14. So people currently listening to comedy podcasts and people listening to self-help podcasts and people listening to true crime podcasts who actually can't stop listening to true crime podcasts. The point is everyone, new and existing customers, ask how to get the new iPhone 14 on us with eligible trade-in. Visit att.com or stores for details. Terms and restrictions may apply.